be talking about verses 21 through 30. <clears throat> Let's open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask as we approach your word that you'd fill us with the awareness that it's you speaking to us, that it's not to be monkeyed with, it's not to be changed, it's not to be brushed aside. Uh, we, we need to feed on your word as being the food from heaven that, that you're deliberately offering to us to feed on, to grow from, and to strengthen ourselves in such a way that we can walk with you and serve you and shine for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. <clears throat> I did get myself a cup of water. Last week we <clears throat> examined Jesus' observation that the Pharisees literally knew nothing about either him or the Father, and, and we saw that he used the particular word in Greek that means just in terms of factual knowledge, that not only they didn't have a relationship with him, they flat didn't know anything about him. They were so ignorant. It's amazing to me because they were well-educated people. They knew the word, but somehow they had really been blinding themselves to what he actually said. <clears throat> and we know from past study that it's entirely possible, even for a believer, to become blind to God's word if we ignore light. There's a thing called judicial blindness, where if you disregard light from God's word, you become blind to that portion of the light, and it can spread to where you're blind to God's word at all. It's just a closed book to you. We don't want that to happen in a believer's life. It frequently is the case in an unbeliever's life. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be, but it frequently is. So. When he said that, that's not the sort of thing that a proud, supposedly well-educated group of people wants to hear to, to find out they don't know what they're talking about. And they weren't going to take it lightly. And we, we look back in the previous chapter, in John chapter 7, verse 32, they had sent officers to arrest him, and the officers came back empty-handed. We saw at the end of that chapter, in verses 45 and 46, that when they came back empty-handed, the uh, temple office, uh, temple rulers and the Pharisees said, why didn't you bring him? They said, we never heard anybody talk like this before. They, they couldn't do it. <clears throat> well, in verse 20 last week of this chapter, chapter 8, we find out why. Um, you'll see in verse 20, it says they wanted to lay hands on him. It says no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. So what we found out is that he's the one that's in charge. And then in spite of the fact they wanted to arrest him, they actually sent officers to arrest him. And here this group wanted to grab him and haul him off, silence him. They couldn't do it because he's the one in charge and his hour was not yet come. <clears throat> that's what we saw last week. But Jesus wasn't done telling them what's what. He still had some things to say. <clears throat> So in verses 21 and 22, it says, Then said Jesus again to them, I go my way, and you, ye, plural, ye, shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. And then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he said, Whither I go, you cannot come. And Jesus was leading up to a challenge of sorts, and a prophecy concerning the near future. He was predicting how he was going to die and that they were going to start trying to figure things out, but it would be too late. <clears throat> they would seek him, but they would die in their sins because they 
had not found him. <clears throat> and he further said that where he was going, they couldn't follow. Now, the Pharisees had no idea what he was talking about. They jumped to the conclusion that he was planning to commit suicide <clears throat> because he'd said they wouldn't be able to follow him. Now, that's pretty illogical. There's lots of ways you could go someplace that somebody else couldn't follow. But it, the fact that they jumped to that conclusion just underscored the fact that they had no idea who he really was. They really didn't. And that's what he told them the previous week, last, last, in the previous portion of the scripture, what we studied last week. He says, you don't know me or the Father. You don't know anything about me or the Father. And if you knew anything about the Father, you'd know about me. <clears throat> and they didn't. So Jesus added to their confusion, but at the same time, he was beginning to explain who he was to the rest of the crowd. You remember where they were? They're in, in uh, Acts, not Acts, John chapter 8, verse 1. We saw that he was back in the temple teaching again, and there was a crowd of people that said all the people came back to hear him. And we saw how there was an interruption because they brought in this woman who was caught in adultery, and the Pharisees wanted to see her stoned, executed. Today, when you see somebody stoned, it doesn't mean the same thing as it did then. <clears throat> they wanted to have her executed. And Jesus dismissed her accusers by saying, well, whoever among you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, they all left. And as you remember, she waited for his judgment. And in so doing, she received his grace. Because yes, he is the eternal judge of the whole world, the whole universe. But he also has the authority to offer grace instead of judgment. <clears throat> and that's what he did. But those other people were still there. See, they were there for the teaching before these guys brought that woman in. When those guys left, the other people didn't leave. And now the Pharisees are stirring up more trouble. So what Jesus is doing is confusing the Pharisees because he's telling them something they've already rejected, and he's explaining who he is to the people. <clears throat> and we're going to see that. The next thing, verses 23 and through 27, it says, He said unto them, You are from beneath. This is your origin. You're from below. <clears throat> I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Okay? I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for, and here's the conditional clause, if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. So they answered, Well, who are you? Now, they've been asking that ever since he first showed up and he identified himself. He showed them that he was the Savior and so forth. <clears throat> so his answer to them, rather than re-identifying himself, he says, I already told you. I already told you. Jesus said to them, I'm the same that I said to you from the beginning. I've been telling you. <clears throat> I have many things to say to you and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. And they understood not that he spoke of the Father. I don't know what they were thinking. <clears throat> he had already identified himself over and over. But what he's doing now for the rest of the people is rebuilding the foundation for people to believe in him. He'd already told them who he was as the Savior, clear back in John chapter 3. Uh, he told him he was the son of God. He had told him that he was the eternal judge from John chapter 5, verse 22. He said that the father judges no man, but that he's committed all judgment to the son. <clears throat> the Pharisees had ignored the truth all along. And so they literally did not know who he was. But the rest of the people were starting to catch on. 
they were starting to believe. A few of them already had believed. <clears throat> but Jesus had to make a sharp delineation between the status of a natural-born human being and somebody who's of supernatural birth. <clears throat> People sometimes refer to him as the God-man, that he's fully God and he's fully man. That's true, but it sounds like you know, when you say the music man, he's the God man. No, that's not what that means. The God man means he's, he's fully God and he's fully man. <clears throat> he's of supernatural birth and heavenly origin. And he plainly told them, you, plural, are from beneath, I am from above. And the origin of each was critically important. Why? Well, <clears throat> because if he was born of the same source as they were, then he would have had the same problem they have. Same problem that you and I have. He would have had a sin nature, and he didn't have one. <clears throat> the deliverer, that's what Savior means, the, the one who delivers us from our uh, bondage, <clears throat> cannot be a slave to sin himself. Why? Well, because the Old Testament lays out something called the laws of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is first introduced in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. I think specifically Numbers is laid out. <clears throat> but it's exemplified in the book of Ruth, where Boaz bailed out Naomi and Ruth. <clears throat> There's four rules for the kinsman redeemer. Number one, it has to be a near relative. Boaz was a close relative of Naomi's. Thus, he could redeem her land and and the take her and, and uh, Ruth out of that bondage. <clears throat> Jesus was physically born into the human race as a baby, specifically to fulfill that part of the kinsman redeemer rule. He had to be a close relative. See, an angel couldn't come and do what he did. Uh, some other level of creation could not come and do it. It had to be a human, but it could not be a human with a sin nature. We're going to see that in a minute because it says the next rule is he had to be free himself. A slave could not redeem another slave. A slave could not buy out another slave. <clears throat> so he had to be free himself. And Jesus was not a slave to sin because he was born without a sin nature. Evidently, being born just of a woman, not with a human father, meant that he did not inherit the sin nature from Adam. If you think back, <clears throat> clear back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says there's this person coming, the seed of the woman, who was going to undo what Satan did there in the Garden of Eden. He was going to crush the serpent's head, it says. And this one person is called the seed, the seed of the woman, not of a man and a woman. And there's only one person in history that fulfills that. <clears throat> Every other person in history has come through Adam, including Eve. She came through Adam. But God was going to make an exception. The seed of the woman, a virgin birth, was going to be able to crush the serpent's head, to undo what Satan did. So he had to be free himself. If Jesus had been from below, like them, he would have been just as much a slave to sin as they were. The third thing is they have to have the price of redemption. Boaz had to be rich enough to buy the land that was in question and to take financial responsibility for both Naomi and Ruth and to raise up children through Ruth, or at least one heir, to retake that land eventually. 
That's that was that's how that law worked. <clears throat> In Boaz's case, he simply meant he had to have the financial ability to do so. In Jesus's case, however, it meant that he had to have a perfect blood sacrifice. He had to have a perfect life himself. His own blood had to come from a perfect man, a sinless man. And he did have that price. See, if he had come to the cross as a sinner, he couldn't have done anything for us. He had to have that price to offer. In Hebrews, it talks about that I come, O Lord, it's written in the book of me, and a body you've prepared for me that God's prepared a body for Jesus to give, that that's what that was about. <clears throat> so that he would have this price to pay. But the fourth thing, and you remember this from the book of Ruth, the, the kinsman redeemer had to be willing. Sure, he's a near relative. Sure, he's got the money. And sure, he's not a slave himself. But if he's not willing, he doesn't have to do this. <clears throat> there was some social stigma of not being willing, but it was still, you had to be willing. Boaz was willing. You remember that the other near relative who was actually better qualified, he was a closer relative than Boaz was, he wasn't willing. He said, that might endanger my inheritance. I don't want to do that. Boaz says, I'm, I'm in. He was willing. So that's the four rules of the kinsman redeemer, and Jesus fulfilled all of them for us. <clears throat> you think about this willingness I don't know if you're aware of it, but Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. He said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own will, and I can take it up again. That's from John chapter uh, 10, verses 17 and 18. Obviously, we haven't got there yet. It could take another six months. We're not going to take that long, but that's what it says there. <clears throat> so if Jesus was not from above because of his supernatural birth and parentage, if he was not thereby free from the baggage of sin and guilt, which the whole human race has been burdened with, then he could not be the Redeemer. This is why it was so important that he points out the origin. He wasn't just saying, well, look at where you came from. No, that wasn't it. He was saying, I'm qualified to redeem. You're not. I'm qualified to bring a perfect sacrifice. You're not. I am the perfect sacrifice, and you can't even find one. <clears throat> he wouldn't be free himself, and regardless of whether he was willing then, he wouldn't be qualified. Okay, so then he makes a statement. <clears throat> this is what triggered the who are you in their minds. He said, if you do not believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. So Jesus connected the fact that he was not of this world, that he was the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. It just means the anointed one. <clears throat> and he's identifying himself he says, because of their unbelief, they were going to die in their sins. He says, if you don't believe I'm he, then you're going to die in your sins. You see, the issue wasn't just their origin. Sure, they were born of a sinful race, and that's a problem. But the ultimate problem is their unbelief and his solution for that problem. Jesus said in, in John chapter 3, verse uh, 18 says, He that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the only begotten Son of God, on the name of the only begotten Son of God. But it goes back further than that because in Numbers, clear back in Numbers chapter 13, God asked Moses, it says, The Lord asked Moses, How long ere these people believe me? He'd shown them 
all these miracles. He had crushed Egypt. He had opened the Red Sea. He brought the people across on dry land with the water, a wall on each side, and drowned the entire Egyptian army when he put the water back down. Uh, he, he fed them for 40 years in the desert. Food and water, and they, their clothing never wore out. And they, he, He'd proved himself over and over, but they still didn't believe him. So in Numbers 13, God asked Moses regarding the children of Israel, how long will it be ere they believe me? <clears throat> Unbelief has always been the barrier. That's why Jesus said what he did in John 3.18, he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now see, part of the problem, listen carefully, part of the problem is that the door to the truth is the will, not the intellect. The door to the truth is the will, not the intellect. These people he was talking to were plenty smart. It wasn't that they couldn't understand, it's that they chose to reject the light and become blind to it. <clears throat> you see, people who've already heard the gospel usually don't need more light as badly as they need to respond to the light they've already got. Amen. If you're unwilling to respond to the light you've already got, then more light won't help. You've already got your eyes closed. More light won't help. <clears throat> In John 3, 19, Jesus went on to say, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. <clears throat> People reject the light of God's word out of hand because they're offended by it. It exposes them for who they are. It shows them to be sinners. We don't like that. So having rejected that light, it's senseless for them to stand around demanding more light. They've already rejected the light. They've already closed their eyes. They've already pulled a sack over their head. They don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. Tell me more. I'm not listening. Show me more light. I've got my eyes closed. Okay, that's what they were doing. <clears throat> now, if they somehow come to a point of repentance, by the way, repentance just means change your mind. If something makes you change your mind and you think, actually, I think this is true then the light can start to shine for you again. You can start to see God's light. You can start to understand his word. Pat James, who founded this church, <clears throat> told me of how a woman he worked with lent him or gave him a copy of a book by Hal Lindsey called Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. I don't think that would have been my first choice to give to somebody, an unbeliever, to read. But somehow it got Pat's attention to the point that he decided, I'm going to study this out. I'm going to prove it one way or another. I'm going to find out if it's true or find out if it's false. And he started studying God's word to find out if it was true. <clears throat> okay, that's a good enough motive. And he told me, he remembered the moment he suddenly realized this is the truth. He says he looked up from his Bible and says, this is damn well true. See, there's his old nature words, but... His conviction was, this is the truth. Okay, at that point, you can see light. At that point, you can use the light you're saying, you, you're seeing, you've, you've opened your eyes. And now God can talk to your heart. And from that point, he started growing and started learning. He was, I was one of his first Bible teachers. Uh, I was, we were both at a church over on the other side of Cornelius. And I had this little dinky class of three or four people. And I remember he was sitting right there. Uh, right after that, the guy that was teaching the other class quit the church, and all of a sudden I had 40 people. And I don't remember where Pat sat after that because the room was jammed. <clears throat> but, but that's how he 
suddenly had his eyes open. This is true. See, it can happen. <clears throat> so when they asked him, that's the Pharisees, when they asked him again, who art thou? Jesus just reminded them they had already had that answer repeatedly. <clears throat> he had presented himself as the Son of God. He'd shown his power in miraculous healings, multiple miraculous healings. Uh, he had uh, provided food for thousands of people, the feeding of the 5,000. There was 5,000 men there, plus their wives and children. We don't know how many people. But he started off with a little kid's lunch with five little barley loaves and two little fishes, and he fed everybody, and they picked up 12 basketfuls of scraps after the meal. There was more left over than there had been to start with, and everybody got fed until they were full. <clears throat> he miraculously provided wine for a wedding feast. I'm not sure that one got advertised that much. Not everybody knew what had happened there, just a few people, it says in John chapter 2. But he'd even revealed that he was the eternal judge of all the earth. He said that he alone was the light of the world. He said that he alone was the bread of life. All these things have been revealed to them. And collectively, they'd rejected it all, so they were, they're still down to asking, who are you? <clears throat> so now he only said, I am who I told you I was from the beginning to them. But he went on to say that he had a great deal to tell them and that the things he was saying were true because the one who sent him was true. Jesus was only going to share what the Father had told him to share. They still didn't understand he was even referring to the Father, so he had to go on from there. He made it more specific, and he said that they were not really going to understand until it was too late. <clears throat> These last three verses, John chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, it says, Then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. <clears throat> but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed on him. <clears throat> so in verse 28, what in the world is he talking about when you have lifted up the Son of Man? He's talking about his crucifixion. How do I know? Because over in John chapter 12, if you want to turn there real quick, <clears throat> John chapter 12, verse 32 and 33, <clears throat> Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said, signifying by what death he would die. So he said the same thing in John chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 28. He says, when you, plural ye, have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am he. <clears throat> he was predicting the manner in which he would die. And he said that then they would realize who he was and that he'd only done as the Father had directed him. And he said that the Father was continually with him. He was not alone. Now, we modern Gentiles, and this goes for all modern people to one degree or another, but I'll say specifically the Gentiles, uh, have two advantages, if you want to call them that. In a way, they're not advantages, but they kind of are. <clears throat> Number one is that we weren't born Jews. So I don't get offended when somebody talks about the Jews killing Jesus. I don't think, we, we did not, you know, because... The Jews have been, had that accusation thrown at them for 2,000 years because it's true. 
You know, but the fact is, it's also not true. Who hammered the nails? Well, the Romans did. Whose sins put him on the cross? Yours and mine. Don't, don't point your fingers too hard at the Jews, but they feel as though they've had that pointed at them for the last 2,000 years, so they're specifically stumbling over that and offended over that because it sounds like an accusation against them. Okay, <clears throat> So we're not, we don't have that as a stumbling block for ourselves. Now, there are some Jews that have managed to get past that, have seen the light of God's word, have understood what he said, and embraced their Messiah. They, sure, they understand the tragedy of his death, but they've embraced that slain Messiah because he's now the living Messiah. He's the living Christ. He's the living God in the flesh, God the Son. And they know that, and they've embraced him. Sure, they grieve over the tragedy of Israel rejecting the Messiah, but they're, they're glorifying him because of his victory at the cross, because that's what he did. He did crush the serpent's head there at the cross. He was the, is the seed of the woman who was promised. <clears throat> you see, most of us as Gentiles, we never had that as a stumbling block to begin with. So that wasn't the problem. No, we got a different problem. We think we're too smart for God. We laugh at the Bible and say, wow, that doesn't even make sense. You know, you're believing fairy tales. The only people that say that kind of stuff are people that do not understand what God's word says. I said the same thing as an atheist up until I was 18. You don't hear me saying that kind of stuff now. Okay. The other side of that coin is that we also never had the blessing of being one of the chosen people of God. We didn't grow up with a heritage <clears throat> of the law and the prophets and wondering when the Messiah was going to come, wondering if we're going to live to see Elijah. That was, that's a consciousness that's built into the, the Jews who at least... Uh, try to follow God's word so we don't have that either we don't have the stumbling block of the crucifixion but we also don't have the blessing of the word as a, as a people <clears throat> the second thing is that we didn't live back then so all of our view of Jesus is after the fact all of it is historical he said to these people when you have lifted up the son of man then you shall know that I am he well it's, it happened 2000 years ago I have no doubt that it was he See, we didn't have to wait for the crucifixion. It already occurred. We see his whole ministry in past tense, including his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension, and it all fits. I can read his whole word, which they couldn't do. None of what we're reading right now was, was written when the Pharisees were yammering at him. All they had was the Old Testament. Well, I can read the Old Testament and see Jesus there. That's what, by the way, that's what we do on Wednesday nights. Is we've been seeing Jesus in the Old Testament from Genesis forward. We're in Numbers, I think, chapter 30 right now. <clears throat> but we're looking at all of it past tense. We see his whole ministry past tense, and it all fits, and we believe it. <clears throat> the truth is, though, he died for the whole world. There's never been a human being other than Jesus himself. There's never been a human being whose sins were not on the cross with Jesus. Nobody needs to feel more guilty of his death than somebody else. Nobody needs to feel less accountable to God for his death. You see, my sins put him there just as much as anybody else's. Somebody else might have done more uh, wickedness than I did, but the, the fact is I'm tired of the same brush as they are. 
And it took Jesus' blood at the cross to free me from that burden, and that is the only way for anybody. So it really, really does level the ground at the foot of the cross to realize that nobody is more guilty and nobody is less guilty. Collectively, the whole human race is guilty of the blood, body and blood of Jesus, and that's why we stand before him asking for his mercy. <clears throat> As an unbeliever, I face that question. See, the question in everybody's life now has to be, what are you going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do about Jesus? <clears throat> As an unbeliever, I face that question because I ignorantly and arrogantly rebelled against him. But the time came when I saw myself as a helpless sinner. I was unable to keep the rules even if I made the rules. <clears throat> I finally knew that I needed him as my savior. Now, I didn't understand very much. I couldn't have told you this stuff about the kinsman redeemer. I didn't know anything about the law of the substitute, why it's okay for God to substitute a righteous person for the punishment of a, of a guilty person and end up with both of them righteous. In our law, that doesn't make one bit of sense. doesn't have to. God's God. We're people. We're the ones with the problem, not him. Okay. I didn't understand any of that. All I knew is that I was a sinner and that I was lost and I needed a Savior and that Jesus was the one. And that's all you got to know. <clears throat> now, what you do about that is the question. How you answer that question. So today, as a believer, the que that same question is still in the forefront every day. Not for salvation. It's for the living grace to walk with Jesus. Every day I have to ask the question, am I going to respond to him as my master in obedience? Am I going to respond to him as my God in worship? Am I going to respond to him as my sustainer, provider, and protector in faith and prayer and active trust? Or am I just going to forget that he's there at all until a crisis arises of some sort? You may not know it, but if you're not walking with Jesus, every moment is a crisis. You're already in trouble. We, don't, we can't see our enemies. Our enemies are invisible. <clears throat> so we have to decide day by day, week by week, moment by moment, am I going to walk with Jesus or not? Am I going to pay attention to him? Am I going to read his word and apply it to my life? Am I going to do what he says to do? <clears throat> We live long after the time of the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Jesus. We know who he is. We know what he's done for us. But we are among those in verse 30 where it says, as he spoke these words, many believed on him. You see, they placed their faith in Jesus, and so have we. <clears throat> the question then is, what did they do later? Well, I don't know. Because we aren't told what happened to those people later. What I can see is that throughout Scripture... I can see examples of believers who went on for God and ones who didn't. In the next chapter, in fact, in chapter 9, I know we'll get there sooner or later. In chapter 9, we have the story of one man who believed Jesus, that changed his life, and, in, and he was persecuted for his faith, heavily persecuted for his faith, kicked out of the temple. And in the midst of his persecution, he became a worshiper of Jesus. That's a good response. See, some people under persecution turn away from Jesus and turn against him. <clears throat> but this man turned toward him. You see, what he did is he put shoe leather on his faith. He made it a walking, living faith. He put shoe leather on his faith. 
And what God asks all of us to do is to put shoe leather on our faith. Put it into practice. Walk the walk, as some people say today. Don't just talk the talk. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul begs us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. Vocation means calling. Yes, you're called by God to walk with him, to serve him, to, to reach to other people. You're an ambassador of Christ. <clears throat> and he says for us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. And he spends the rest of that chapter and pretty much the whole rest of the book of Ephesians explaining how to do just that. That's what the book of Ephesians is about, is how to walk with God. It starts off explaining where you stand in God, your position in Christ. I don't want to do a synopsis of the book of Ephesians right now, but believe me, it's worth reading. <clears throat> he tells you who you are in Christ. tells you what you have in Christ. He tells you how to respond to him and then how to respond to everything around you, including your, your wife, your kids, the government, your friends, your enemies, uh, how to respond to our invisible enemies. It's all there. Good book to memorize if you can. It's a good book to really know. <clears throat> But some of these people who believed would go on to be martyred for their faith. There was a lot of believers that were killed for their faith. There was others who lived long, quiet lives, blessing everyone around them and honoring the Lord in everything they said and did in every area of their life. <clears throat> but there's others who didn't do either one of those. They essentially slipped back into the world's way of thinking and behavior. And it got to the place that nobody could tell them from a from a non-believer. We can read about all three of those kinds of believers throughout the book of Acts and the epistles. We see by name people that went back to the world. We see by name people who lived their lives in quiet obscurity but were a total blessing to everyone around them. We see by name people that served God, spoke up for God, and were killed for it. And there's everything in between. <clears throat> We can read about, we can see people like that today too. Now here's the point. Each of you has a will. You, you make choices. You look at things and might make a snap judgment and make a choice that you didn't really have any real, you know, judicial reason for. You make other decisions based on you did the research, you know what's right. Um, some of you buy cars that way. Some of you buy cars because you like the color. You know, I bought a one car just because it had a good air conditioner. It was hot that day. You know, I, honestly, that's the car I currently drive. That's the reason I bought it. It's been a good car, but if it hadn't been for that air conditioner, I wouldn't have bought it. I was just baking my brains out in the car I had. <clears throat> so we make decisions, not always intellectual decisions, but always, without exception, it's our will that makes that decision. So you have a will. <clears throat> Each of us also have an intellect. We think, we learn, we investigate, we ask questions. So each of you can read your Bible to intellectually learn what God wants you to do. But ultimately, the door to the truth is the will, not the intellect. At some point, you have to choose to do what God asks you to do. At some point, you have to choose that right now, right now, I'm going to make a good decision. Right now, I'm going to do what's right in front of me to do. Moment by moment, day by day, you have to decide what you'll actually do with Jesus. I have to make that same decision too every day. So use your intellect, but use your will as well to choose to put shoe leather on your faith. Let's go ahead and pray. 
Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you'd teach us to make right decisions and to walk with you in the light of your word every day. We'd ask that we'd learn from your word what you want us to do, but then choose day by day to obey you, choose to fulfill your word, choose to be your hands and feet and voice on this world, choose to shine in the darkness of this world, reflecting your light into the lives of those around us. We'd ask that you'd shape us into your likeness, use us as tools in your hands. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.